everybody was stocking up on five litre bottles of water and many of the supermarkets ran out. So it did create quite a lot of panic. It was a complete fear-based response. But while people might have fears about other things, drought is a specific, you know, it's like a scarcity response that it elicits in people. Welcome to This New Climate, an acclimatized podcast about the innovations that can transform our world as we enter a new era of climate instability. You just heard Gisela Kaiser speaking about people's visceral response to water scarcity. Gisela knows more than most about the issue. I'm the executive director at the city of Cape Town, responsible for informal settlements, water and sanitation, as well as solid waste. Cape Town, of course, made global headlines when it announced that it was approaching day zero and running out of water completely earlier this year. In this episode, we explore why water scarcity is becoming one of the defining challenges of our time and investigate a new tool that could help guide decision makers towards the most effective solutions to address it. Hello, my name's Will Bugler and you are listening to This New Climate. In this, the first series of this brand new podcast, we're delving into some of the most innovative ideas that have the potential to transform the way we respond to the challenges posed by ever-increasing climate instability. To do this, we're featuring five great projects that were helped to grow in part thanks to support from the European Institute of Innovation and Technology's Climate Kick Initiative. In this episode, we're looking at how an online tool called Water to Invest might be able to help decision makers to make the right choices when investing in solutions to tackle water scarcity. Now, the world's population has tripled in the last 100 years, but according to the UN, water demand has been growing at more than twice that rate. For many parts of the world, climate change will compound the issue of booming demand by severely restricting supply. The consequences of this made headlines worldwide earlier this year when the city of Cape Town in South Africa declared that it was running dry. Let's hear from Gisela Kaiser again. The worst was probably when we came into January of this year, our dam levels were at 31%. Now, generally our hottest months are like the end of January and February and then temperatures tend to peak in the high 30s. So when we came into January of this year with dam levels at 31%, with still the prospect of at least three really hot months before April tends to start to cool down a little, that was when a decision was taken to announce that day zero was a likelihood in April when dam levels we would be at 13.5%, which meant that we would have three months of really restricted supply left. Just to explain a little about the dam levels in Cape Town, in an unrestricted year when the city is using water as it normally would, dam levels are expected to be at around 50%. By the end of January, still with several months remaining of South Africa's hot summer, dam levels were almost half this level. If water levels had continued to fall to 13.5%, the city would only have around 90 days of water supply left, even after severe restrictions were placed on consumption. This prompted city officials to declare that the city was nearing day zero, a term that made headlines around the world and brought out a strong reaction in the people of Cape Town. It was a complete fear-based response 
But while people might have fears about other things, drought is a specific, <laughs> it's like a scarcity response that it elicits in people. It wasn't complete panic that people were beating each other up for the last five liters of water, but there was certainly, everybody was thinking, oh dear, what if we'd better make some provision in case it doesn't rain? To manage the crisis, Giza says Cape Town did two things. They acted early and they communicated clearly. It really became apparent that it was critical to have easily available information that people could trust in. In Cape Town, we took a very risk-averse approach and we, three months before we got to the point where we had three months of water, before we would get to date storage, we announced that there is a potential four-day zero. When you've got four million people, you basically have to get them all on board (laughs) to save water. Um, So we made a decision then to announce it and it's been a very difficult ride because, um, you know, a lot of people did not enjoy having to cart water around with buckets. A lot of people clearly didn't enjoy paying a lot more for water or having their, their water restricted at, at a household level. There's been a huge amount written about Cape Town's response to Day Zero and how they succeeded in re- reducing demand dramatically. Water use was restricted to 50 litres per person per day. For comparison, the average daily per person consumption in California was 321 litres in 2016. Exceeding your allowance could mean that a meter was installed that cut off your water once you reached your daily limit, or indeed facing a hefty fine. The response from Capetonians was strong, with people taking seriously the collective effort to save water. Some people cut their hair shorter to reduce water use when washing it, showered over buckets to reuse the grey water for toilet flushing or to water the garden, and limited loo flushes even to once a day. By the end of April 2018, the city was using almost 100 million litres of water per day less than it was in the previous year. It staved off day zero, and the rains eventually came. But this was crisis management, How can future day zeros be avoided? Why hadn't Cape Town invested in new solutions to increase supply? To understand a bit more about this, we need to go back to 2014, when, after a year of plentiful rainfall, Cape Town's dams were 100% full. We are served by a supply system that is served by six large dams. It's larger than a system that just serves Cape Town, although we take about two-thirds of water from the dams. Agriculture takes about a third, and there are other urban centres in the supply system that take about 7%. So while Sydney has a water provision or storage for about five years' supply, our system only supplies about less than two years. But in terms of our dam designs, most of them take a year or less of an average rainfall season to fill, while only the one dam, the largest dam, typically takes two rainy seasons to fill up. Since the year 2000, our dams have spilt approximately half the time. So typically every second year, dams will will get to 100% and over, and water will then cross the spillway and run to the ocean. And this was, in fact, what happened in 2014. 
So in 2014, the dams were full, and at the same time, Cape Town had been implementing some very successful demand management policies that had seen water consumption fall considerably since the year 2000. So always looking kind of rosy from a water's perspective. We had a lot of other problems, as one always does, but water supply was not one of them. But then in 2015, water consumption went up, perhaps due to perceived abundance in the system. This also coincided with a number of key investment decisions in the city. They were exploring the possibility of building a desalinisation plant to ensure that supply kept pace with population growth and were also looking at diversifying supply by exploring deep rock aquifers. But both of these measures were considered to be prohibitively expensive. Prior to the drought, as the city and also together with the National Department of Water and Sanitation, who is responsible for running the water system, it had a series of interventions planned, but due to our successful water conservation and demand management, we had managed to, to push those back. We were basically told, that's great, but now is not the time. But then the picture began to change. What then happened in 2015 was that we got only about 50% of our annual average rainfall. That then, you know, a one-year drought is nothing in it, and people can generally cope with that quite, quite easily. But then in 2016, we had a little bit better rainfall, but it was only about half of an average year or around 60%. Then in 2017, we had less than 40% of an average year's rainfall. To suffer three years of rainfall that much below average was something unprecedented in Cape Town's history. And they have rainfall records going back to 1928. Scientists estimate that these three successive drought years was a one in 600 year event. But of course, climate change is shifting the goalposts. The past is no longer a reliable guide to the future. That, of course, is also why the beginning of this year was so absolutely scary, because we didn't have any confidence that that rainfall would be any more than last year. So while we were modelling on the worst rainfall that we could have, because that was the worst on in our history, that it would be equal to last year's rainfall, I was personally petrified that we would have even less than that, because you just can't say climate change is such that when you're reliant on rainfall from the sky, you have absolutely no control. You have no control. A decision maker's worst nightmare. And that's just the problem. How can we know which investments will manage water supply and demand in a cost-effective way? This is a challenge that is not unique to Cape Town, of course. Mandy Eichert is the head of the Adaptation Implementation Initiative at the C40 Cities Climate Leadership Group, which is the organisation at the centre of a network of major cities committed to tackling climate change. We know that at least of our 96 member cities, one in four of them has reported to us that they currently already face water stresses. And we are receiving data as well in our reporting that almost three times as many of those, so 70% of our member cities, foresee a substantive risk to their future water supply in the face of climate change. But certainly we know across the board, all of our cities and cities around the world will have to become much smarter about water management to continue to thrive beyond, honestly, this century in, in some places. 
So becoming smarter about water management is a challenge, and it's one that extends beyond cities to other sectors, notably agriculture, energy and heavy industry, all of which use considerable quantities of water. But what does being smarter look like? How can decision makers be empowered to take more control over investment decisions in water management? Giesler says this is a difficult task for policymakers. Part of our strategy is that we do want to reduce our reliance on rainfall and we want to introduce redundancy into the system, but it must be affordable. So during the drought response, a crisis response tends to lead to expensive things to come online. So if you go to tender in a market where everybody knows that you're desperate for, for water, things like drilling of boreholes. Borehole contractors were in high demand, so costs came in came in higher. What we are trying to do now is to just reassess, rephase all our programs of additional water to make sure that we get value for money. It's too early to tell whether there's been a step change in our rainfall pattern, but on the flip side, it's also too early to tell that there hasn't been a step change. So this year, while it was close to average, might be the wettest year that we will see in the next 10 years. So there is certainly still a huge level of uncertainty left in the system. It is quite a challenge because you always have to weigh up costs and benefits of different interventions. And unfortunately, it's very difficult to be able to afford to do everything that you can do or that you want to do to really make a difference and create a great society. In water management in the face of climate change, decision makers face two major obstacles. Firstly, modelled projections of rainfall are uncertain, far more so than temperature. They also vary considerably from region to region and from river catchment to river catchment. The nature of future rainfall also makes a big difference too. In some regions, for instance, total annual rainfall may be projected to increase. However, the rains might fall in short, heavy bursts, interspersed by long dry spells, rather than spread evenly across the year. So there is a problem in accessing reliable data and information on water scarcity. Secondly, though, there is a fundamental lack of tools at the disposal of decision makers to allow them to translate climate data and to use it to decide where to spend money most effectively. And this matters because of the scale of some of the investments that are being made. When you take decisions, you don't take decisions just for next year or the coming years. You may take a decision to invest uh, in, I don't know, improving... Uh, the, the, the irrigation efficiency using, for instance, more drip irrigation or storing more water on the ground or in small dams. So all these decisions, they need to be informed of what are the likely scenarios for the future because when you invest, it's not for one year, it's for a period of one or two or three decades. So decision makers need long-term planning. You just heard Daniel Zimmer. He's the head of the sustainable land use theme at Climate Kick, which has been investing in several projects to try and tackle water scarcity in the face of climate change. For Daniel, there remains a big gap between the climate data and the information and its practical implementation by decision makers. It's a gap that needs to be filled by tools and methods that can help translate data and make it useful. One such investment has been the water to invest tool. 
Um, so this um, model, this tool that predicts water availability in a given catchment everywhere in the world has been uh, developed by the University of Utrecht and is one probably the best at the moment uh, scenario tool uh, for water resources availability. Water to Invest is one of the only global scale analysis tools that predicts water scarcity at the catchment level for a range of different climate change scenarios. It's already considered to be one of the best in the business at this and is now being used extensively by the World Resource Institute to inform their work on water resources. But the tool goes further than simply providing information on future water scarcity in a given catchment. The originality of um, Water to Invest is the combination of this scenario tool with an approach that is similar to uh, the marginal abatement cost curves uh, related to uh, greenhouse gas mitigation. Okay, so marginal abatement cost curves. They may not sound sexy, and believe me, they really, really aren't, but they are important. As Daniel said, they're often used to decide on climate mitigation which policy or investment will be most cost-effective in cutting greenhouse gas emissions. But they're much more difficult to drive for adaptation. What Water to Invest does is present decision makers with a suite of adaptation options to address their particular water scarcity issue, which are costed according to how much they will reduce water scarcity. It's a tool that looks at different options for adaptation, such as storing uh, more water in uh, small dams or improving the efficiency of irrigation or transforming agricultural practices uh, to use uh, rainfall better. Uh, so looking at these solutions and uh, assessing their potential impact in a given catchment to reduce uh, the, the water tensions and uh, at the same time looking at the costs of implementation of these solutions so that you can really take uh, 10 adaptation solutions and see what impacts they can have in a given catchment and whether they are profit positive, profit neutral, profit negative for the farmers or for the agencies that manage this catchment. Now, we're going to come back to Water to Invest again a little later and hear from the principal investigator responsible for the tool at Utrecht University. But first, let's understand what impact climate change will have on future water availability. We've already heard from both Gisela and Mandy that water scarcity is not an issue for the future. It's already a major concern. But what might the impact of climate change be on water availability over the next 50 to 100 years? After all, this is the lifespan of many of the investments in major water infrastructure, such as dams. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, made it clear in its last full assessment report that the amount of greenhouse gas emissions emitted will have a big bearing on water scarcity in the future. The report states that 
For each degree of global warming, approximately 7% of the global population is projected to be exposed to a decrease of renewable water resources of at least 20%. That's around 532 million people, taking today's population figures. Importantly, the science also suggests that surface and groundwater resources in dry regions will reduce significantly, Increasing competition for water among agriculture, ecosystems, settlements, industry and energy production affecting regional water, energy and food security. In higher latitudes, on the other hand, water resources may increase overall. The impact of reduced overall rainfall on water resources is also not exactly proportional, as Daniel Zimmer explains. So it is really uh, important to uh, anticipate the potential changes because if you look at, uh, at the water resources in a catchment, the surface runoff is always a very small fraction of the rainfall. And so if, say, your rainfall decreases by uh, 10-20%, you run off maybe even uh, well, maybe decreasing even more, much more than, than this. So uh, this non-linearity of the water resources uh, is very uh, critical, especially in water-scarce countries. Mandy Eichert says that the practical implications of this are significant, especially in the city context. Now, since already 80% of our C40 member cities are reliant on surface water for their water supply, we recognize that the potential exposure to climate change and the conditions that will pose is very high, especially as we can all understand that warming temperatures increases the already substantial losses of, of surface water to evaporation. So as, as cities get hotter as well and as the climate gets hotter, we'll lose more of that dammed, rivered surface water supply that the cities have been relying upon. And so we certainly recognize that our, our member cities will face more frequent and more intense drought and water shortage and water stress conditions. I'd say also, you know, compounding this, water losses in some of our cities that have aging infrastructure can already be as high as, you know, 70% or so, just due to old pipes and leaks that haven't been addressed or in some cases even identified which means that we're already using a lot of energy and we're wasting a lot of energy that has been used to possibly treat, pump and distribute this water further upstream. The combination of a growing population, ageing infrastructure and a new climate reality of lower levels of surface and groundwater availability for many parts of the world all points to the need for substantial, sustained investment. It was this reality that led Professor Mark Bierkens to focus his efforts on the socio-economic aspects of climate change and hydrology. Once I became a professor in, um, in Utrecht in 2002, I decided I wanted to work on something that has to do with global change to basically be able to work on global issues uh, regarding climate change, but also socio-economic change. So it was actually a conscious decision to to work on topics, hydrological topics that are more at the centre of uh, environmental change. Mark is a professor of hydrology at Utrecht University and he also works part-time as a senior scientist at Deltares, a major water research institute in the Netherlands. He became frustrated by the gulf between the scientific research that was being produced on climate change and water scarcity 
and the practical information needed to respond to the issue. So most of those papers uh, are about, you know, it's going to be this bad and this bad there and there, and we have so little time to adapt and so on, but none of those publications ever touched upon, okay, we know now that we are in uh, dire straits in the near future, what are we going to do about it? And also, what is that going to cost us? It was at this point that Mark decided to develop the Water to Invest tool. The tool is underpinned by a global hydrological model that has been developed over many years. Here's Mark explaining how the tool works. Well, the Water to Invest tool uh, allows you to uh, go anywhere in the world, select a so-called water province. A water province is basically an area in which water is shared, a river basin, for example. And you can then click on that uh, water province and then you can also select a scenario, which can be a socio-economic scenario in combination with a climate scenario. And then it provides data on uh, how the temperature and precipitation changes in the future, but also how the different supply and demands of water are going to change in that water province. So crucially, the tool not only indicates what effect the climate is likely to have on water resources in the area, but also accounts for socio-economic changes that affect water demand. This allows the tool to provide decision makers with a figure that quantifies the water gap, the difference between supply and demand, so that they can have a far better idea of how to plan their investment. What makes water to invest especially powerful, though, is that it doesn't stop at this point. It then provides crucial information about what measures would be able to close that water gap. Uh, Once you have done that, you can try to fill, uh, to close that water gap by selecting measures, adaptation measures that uh, enable you to um, either save water, reduce demand, or increase supply. And then if you select a set of measures, it computes the so-called water marginal cost curve, which gives you the cheapest way to close the water gap, given the measures that you selected. And that enables you to, at least at first order, get an idea on how much it will cost at minimum to uh, adapt to looming water scarcity in the future. I think the tool is quite unique in that it's the first to provide regional estimates of adaptation costs This provides decision-makers with a very powerful tool for deciding on prioritising investments in adaptation. The tool is also designed in such a way that it can be tailored to suit a specific region or location in which it is being used. So if you know the cost of a specific measure or adaptation option, you can enter those separately to have a better idea of the true cost of those measures. All this is web-based and supported by a high-resolution global hydrological model, which makes the tool unique in this space. Predicting future water availability also comes with uncertainties, both in terms of climate projections and future scenarios for things like population and economic growth. For Mark, this is an area where the tool can develop even further. There are quite a lot of uh, uncertainties that uh, are out there, but we were not able, given the budget that we had to deal with all of them. First of all, there's climate uncertainty which means you do not know what the actual climate scenario is going to be. It's actually a a scenario. It's not a projection of a given future. What we did is therefore analyze all the different climate scenarios, but even for a given climate scenario, so for a given CO2 forcing, it is not 
necessarily uh, known what the sensitivity of the climate system is to that. So you have to run multiple climate models to be able to get that climate uncertainty in. Uh, unfortunately, that was too uh, expensive to do. So in the end, we only took the middle of the road climate model. Uh, there is a model that is more in the middle in terms of uh, how wet or dry it's going to be in the future. So what Mark is saying there is that the tool looks at a range of possible future climate scenarios, from high emission scenarios with a high population growth to lower emission scenarios that envisage a sharp move away from burning fossil fuels, for example. However, whichever of these scenarios is selected, the tool currently relies on the outputs of one global climate model to indicate what impacts the scenario will have on the climate. Now, there are tens of these models, and each predict that the climate system will react a little bit differently to greenhouse gas emissions. So Mark and his team have picked a model that falls in the middle of the range of those models. But ideally, the tool would incorporate many different climate models, often called an ensemble. However, this would require a lot more computing time and power. So we're working on that right now. Uh, And at the same time, we... um we also want to look at economic optimality uh, by um, investing under optimal allocation of water and also trying to look at the stakeholder uptake of measures. So now you assume that measures are economically, even if they're economically optimal, it's not necessary so that the regional governance or culture will be so that they would actually be applied there. So we also want to include the probability of measures being taken up by the regional and local stakeholders. So in addition to developing the tool to better deal with climate uncertainty, the team also has plans to develop a more nuanced approach at the regional and local levels, adding specific information about the likelihood that adaptation options would be taken up and accepted by local stakeholders. This would be extremely powerful for water managers and policymakers who are often constrained in their decision-making by factors beyond the cost-benefit analysis and marginal abatement curves. For Daniel Zimmer, demonstrating the power of water to invest in various local contexts will be crucial to its future success. The next step that we need uh, to do is to expand the number of solutions by working in specific catchments because these adaptation measures may be really site-specific and we need to study uh, quite a number of catchments in order to have a sort of portfolio of solutions and the way they can be embedded in the water management systems in in catchments in order to to expand again and give more choice to the, uh, to the decision makers in these catchments. While there is still room for development of the Water to Invest tool, it provides a powerful tool for water managers to engage with other decision makers on the issue of water scarcity and how it might affect key industries. Mandy Eichert from C40 Leadership Group suggests that providing evidence that can convince municipal governments to act is a really vital step forward. I would say that... From my current perspective, the biggest barrier for cities to adapting to water scarcity and drought most likely is the basic realization that a city needs to take responsibility for its own water security. And I know that sounds very, very simplistic, 
and I certainly don't mean to not recognize the efforts in, in many cities where they are actually tackling this and, and taking responsibility for their, their long-term water supply. But certainly we know across the board, all of our cities and cities around the world will have to become much smarter about water management to continue to thrive beyond, honestly, this century in, in some places, embracing holistic water management, addressing all aspects of water supply and management cycle, and really looking now at kind of newly value, valuing water as a resource and, and a crucial component of urban sustainability. What is also clear from our conversations with Gisela Kaiser is that there are plenty of places that have come to that realisation already and the demand for tools like water to invest is only likely to grow. We are absolutely adamant that we're not going to lose the lessons from the drought and that we are going to still use the drought to make good decisions about moving forward. Water was undervalued and it was certainly underpriced until the end of June last year. So the first thing was to make sure that our water is priced right so that we can actually afford to provide water and maintain our infrastructure and everything else. Part of our strategy is that we do want to reduce our reliance on rainfall and we want to introduce redundancy into the system, but it must be affordable. There is perhaps a misconception that better, more accurate climate data is all that's needed to make better decisions. However, this really is only partly true. Yes, good data is needed as the basis for good decision-making. However, there is also a yawning gap between the data and the decision-maker. The reality is, without tools like Water to Invest to translate climate data into useful information that gets down to the brass tacks issues on which decisions are based, progress on adaptation will be severely impaired. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, then please remember to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to get in touch with us, you can connect on Twitter at This New Climate and head over to www.acclimatize.uk.com forward slash This New Climate to learn more about this podcast. Many thanks to our guests, Mandy Eichert from C40 Cities, Gisela Kaiser from the city of Cape Town, Mark Birkins from Utrecht University and Daniel Zimmer from Climate Kick. Also a big shout out to our Climate Kick coordinators for this episode, Daniel Zimmer and Ellie Tonks. Content for this episode was derived in part from a series of innovation insight notes coordinated by Ellie Tonks and Gina Lovett for Climate Kick. This episode was produced by Acclimatise and Climate Kick, hosted by me, Will Bugler, background research and narrative development by Georgina Wade and Will Bugler, and editing and production support from Lower Street. Thanks again, and see you next time. Mm-hmm.